We're not going to have a scripture reading. I'll let Carlin read the scripture, but I will introduce Carlin. Um, as I shared, we have been journeying, partnering together. This happened actually a few years ago at a members meeting. And one of the things that we had said as a church, and I believe Thomas had said this, is that you know, we, we don't support a ton of missionaries, but what we do do is try to go deep with those who are global partners. And we also believe strongly in the relationship that we have with our members to different global partners. We, um, so one of the things we had said is if you have someone that you think, wow, I'd really love for our church to support this person, we'd love to journey with you in that. Doesn't actually mean that it will take place. And I don't want to give that expectation that if you present someone, we're automatically going to do it. It, it. There's a process. That process is significant. And the reason why is we want to, like I said, we're not going to support a lot of people, but we will try to go deep with that person. And hopefully, Lord willing, for the the length of the time that they're in the field. And so um, because of that, we actually, as elders, we created a pretty substantial it's it's a means by which we are able to get to know the person at a first level, which is this form. And we sent it, Victor and Margaret were the first ones to come and say, hey, we have this person. Um, we'd really like you to consider you know, partnering with him. And so I, we sent this form. We had just established it. Um, and we, we created a whole policy and everything. And we figured, well, not too many people are going to fill out this form. It's pretty substantial. And Carlin sent it back, and it was very substantial, and we read it. But there are so many things about our partnership that really connect together. One is his connection to Surge, which is a ministry and formerly World Harvest Mission. And for those of you who are have taken sonship with me and, and also with Sam and Jungjun, just different groups that have been doing that, that was started by Jack Miller. So that was an automatic real deep connection of we get this like we're in this in terms of theologically view of mission and so that was a first sort of connector and then um there's a he's part of a ascending church grace community church in um in southern california that we have a lot of affinity towards and then getting to know Carlin and Michelle, and we had a first meeting, and we had further conversations and Zoom calls. And I'm sure Victor and Margaret are thinking, are these guys ever going to act on this? Or, But it was just our way of saying, we, we have to do our due diligence because we don't want to take on somebody and then let them go because of theological concerns or different ministry philosophies that would really hinder our connectedness to a person and our responsibility as elders over the church. And so after much conversation, prayer, processing, working through, we just said, yeah, this, this is a family that we want to partner with, and we get it. And even after three years, they were still with us, working through this. They hadn't given up, and we hadn't given up. And so... With that said, praying through it, the Lord just confirmed all that we had just uh, gone through, and we felt this is where we need to be. And so with that said, we asked Carlin to come and speak, and he's going to share a little bit about who he is, what he's doing in Burundi, and uh, 
I just love Carlin. Let me just give one last story. You might be sharing it, which is one of the first things that you had said to us is that you're a medical doctor. Um, you were with a group of people. Was it Michigan State or University, University of Michigan Med School? And they were with a group of doctors, med students actually, coming together. And they all had the common vision of wanting to take their gifts and their skills and all their training and not go and set up a practice somewhere in the country to make a lot of money, but rather to use that for the purpose of making disciples of Jesus and looked for a place around the world where they could do that. They connected with Serge. Serge was on board with them. And then they went and the Lord led them to Burundi. And they started a, a hospital medical school to train up not just Burundian doctors, but disciples of Jesus. And to us, that connected with us. And so we're excited to have you with us. Thank you for joining us and for most of all preaching God's word. Well, thank you, Pastor Sam. Thank you, Wellspring Church, for that welcome. And I would be remiss if the first thing I did up here was not to bring you greetings from the church in Burundi. They always ask me when I come back, did you greet the churches for us? And I say, yes, I did. I promise I did. But Burundi sends you their greetings, and I'll give it to you in Kirundi, their language, which is Nurkundo Namahoro Namnebge. So God's love and peace be to you. And I will bring your greetings back to them. Don't worry, I will honestly do it. Um, thank you for that introduction. Uh, I've known Victor and Margaret since undergrad days at UC San Diego in the early aughts. And um, it was even my pleasure to see them work their relationship from the kind of at arm's length to dating and now married and with two beautiful children. So what a blessing from the Lord. The work that we get to do in Burundi is, um, is medical in its kind of context, but it's spiritual in its heart. Uh, I talk about the onion layer. So the, the outer layer of the onion is development work. We employ people. We have a feeding program. We brought clean water to our 500 person village and the environment. And that's the outermost layer in there to that is the medical care that we provide for really the indigent poor of Burundi, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. Burundi and Malawi are kind of at a race to the bottom with a GDP per capita. That's like $300 per person per year. So people are living on less than a dollar a day. Um, so that's the medical care that we give in Jesus name. And the hospital was there before we got there but they didn't have a medical staff. So our team of six physicians of all different specialties kind of said, this is a good place that could absorb us uh, all at once. But inside of the medical care, which we deliver in a Christian context, and we have a wonderful chaplaincy crew, and we get to see about 60 to 120 patients convert to Christ a month. So that's like a new church plant every month in a lot of ways. They come from different communities, so we have to plug them into churches that exist already, but there's a lot of beautiful fruit that comes out of that. But inside that is the training of medical students, and we'll call them interns. Um, so we get to do that in the context of a Christian medical school, and both the hospital and the university are led by Burundians, Christians, but they needed help for the clinical faculty, so that's where our team came in. So we get to spend months at a time with these young students, medical students, residents, 
And that's the life on life discipleship, which is really that core. That's the core of the onion is that we would share the love of Christ, the truth of Christ, and the mission of Christ with these students. We say we're not the best people for our job. Our students are because they can see and hear and understand and perceive and sense all of those things within their own culture that we'll always be outsiders for. But we're praying and training so that the next round of medical missionaries for Burundi comes from Burundians, from our our graduates. And they do, they come from other countries too. So it's not just Burundi. We have Rwandans, Congolese, uh, Ugandans, Cameroonians, and even one Haitian in our medical school, which is a blessing because we teach in French. So that works for those other countries. But they go back to their countries. And so we're getting, God has given us even a broader platform, which is, this is all of God. We did not, we could not have foreseen that it would happen so broadly and so quickly. So we're very grateful for your support in that. But I don't want to talk about us so much because I have this wonderful privilege, which is I get to address you on the first Sunday after California relaxes its restrictions and on Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all the dads here. Um, We are grateful that God gave us two kids um, on earth. Our daughter, Gabrielle, that you saw just turned two last week, and our son will turn four months on uh, in a week. So we're right at the beginning of this process. Some of you, I can see already, some of you are a little further along than we are. But happy Father's Day. This message is targeted towards the dads, but you're going to see that it's applicable to everybody in the church here. So let's get started. We're going to be in the book of John, and the title of the sermon is The Five Names Christ Calls His Disciples in John. So name calling, maybe not the right way to say that, but I had to come up with something. So the five names that Jesus calls his followers from the book of John. And we're going to start in John chapter 13. Um, And so I actually have, I know that you guys have the whole family, the whole church family here together. So I have a question for the kids. This is kind of a Bible trivia stumper. What was the first job that Adam did for God? Does anybody know? You know that they they were given a commission to be fruitful and multiply you know that they were told to tend the garden, but what's the first thing Adam actually did for God? Is that, is that Benny? Nailed it, buddy. Good job. Adam named the animals. If you, read in, if you read in Genesis 2, you will find that the first thing, even before Eve was created, God created the animals and brought them to Adam. And in the ESV, it says to see what Adam would call them. So naming the animals was the first job that humans ever had. So names are important. And you'll know, I mean, you guys know, you're very, you're smart scientific people. Like calling an armadillo an anteater is at best a little confused and at worst is totally deceptive because they're, they're entirely different animals. And armadillos eat worms and bugs and lizards and frogs and stuff too. So they're not just anteaters. And the anteater is the mascot of UC Irvine. So... (laughs) Totally different, right? What we call things matter, right? So in Kurundi, the tribal language of Burundi, they have 16 noun classes. So some of you speak Spanish or French, and there's genders, right? There's masculine and feminine nouns. So Kurundi has 16 of those. They don't call them genders because that doesn't make sense. There's two genders, right? But in Kurundi, there's 16 noun classes, and they carry meaning just by being in a certain noun class. So there's implications. I'm gonna give you a little Kurundi lesson so that you can feel more connected to Burundi. So the way to say a person is umunhu. 
the way to say people is abanhu. All right, umunhu abanhu. So man is umugabo, men is abagabo. Are you starting to see a pattern? Women um, or woman umugore, women abagore. You starting to see the pattern? Boys umuhungu or boy umuhungu, boys abahungu. Girl umukobga, girls abakobga. You're starting to see, right? Those are the first two noun classes. Now, names carry meaning though. Like, watch what happens to an unmarried man. So like someone of 25 years old, but not married. He's umusore, but if there's more than one of them, they're imisore. It's not abasore, it's imisore. So they've like exited the class of nouns that carries all the people. And now they're entering into one, which is kind of this like I don't want to say that this is, this is historic and this is just linguistic, but it's the same class of nouns for people who are blind or disabled. They get into a different category. But it's even worse for unmarried women. So if you're a 25-year-old woman and you're unmarried in Kirundi, you're, you're called uh, inhoze. And there's the same mas uh, plural and singular. So, oh, sorry, inhumi. Inhumi is the word for a single girl. And the other nouns that are in that class are ingha, cow, imhene, goat, inghono, chicken, like the farm animals, basically. Right? So you can see that, I mean, this is just a linguistic um, vestige of a time when all of these judgments were associated with your station in life. And you can just imagine that if you're a young person growing up in that culture, being exposed to this language, how that's this like... Maybe you don't even notice it because you grew up with that language, but it's this subtle sort of kick in the shins every time someone refers to you. Um, so names matter. What we call people matters, even if it's just an artifact of the way our language was developed. You know, in the case of the Banhu-derived languages like Kirundi 800 years ago. But I want to take you through the names Jesus calls his followers. And some of them feel very flattering and others do not. So let's start at John 13, 16. If you have your copy of God's word, we're in 13, 16, and we'll be in chapter 13, 15, and 20. So you don't have to go too far in your Bible. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can look it up in that way. But I'm reading from the ESV, John 13, 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This is pretty easy to understand, right? This is, the, this is axiomatic, intrinsically really easy to understand. The one who generates the task is in a position of authority or power over the one who has to execute that task. So a servant is not greater than the master, and the messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. We got it. That's really easy. Jesus, why are you telling us this? Well, I'm going to get a little bit into that word, servant. You guys have probably heard this word used before. It's doulos which is like, it's more than a servant in our context, and it's probably less than a slave in, in the American mentality of what a slave is. And that's probably why the translators chose servant, because slave carries a lot of connotative meaning in our context, which is, just creates difficulties in understanding what he's trying to say. But a servant in that time was somebody who did all the menial chores around the house. They would do cooking and cleaning. You guys understand this, the stuff that you wish somebody else could do for your house, but you make your kids do. Um, so this is, this is the position of, it, it really emphasizes that authority, submission, or that um, direction and uh, subjection kind of relationship. 
And Jesus is calling his disciples servants. So there's, this is, this is the, probably the most distant relationship that we could think of for the way that the followers of Christ respond to Christ. Basically, what he's saying is, if I give a command, an order, you are to follow that command or order. And, and this is true. God doesn't make suggestions or recommendations to his people. He tells them what to do. He says, don't murder. It's not like, I suggest that you consider not, murder, not slaughtering your neighbors. You know, like, no, he's like, don't do this. This is, a, this is interdeep. This is, this is forbidden. Don't do this. And, and he, on the other side, gives us positive commands. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that love command is really hard, and we're going to talk about that more as we go along. But this is the relationship, servant-master. Jesus is the master. Now, I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit because I want, to, I want right away to say, if you, if you know anything about hermeneutics, you've already read the context of John 13, and you realize that this is a very special way, this is a very special situation, because Jesus is telling his followers that they are his servants right after he washes their feet at the table of the Last Supper. So what better master can you imagine than one who would stoop to wash your feet? Now, washing your feet, as many of you probably know, is like the worst job in that day and age because they wore sandals and they were outside all the time and it was dusty and sometimes you stepped in something that didn't smell good. And that was the person who had to clean up your feet afterwards. It's like the lowest of the low jobs. Because even amongst servants, there's like a rank, right? If you're like the chief servant, you have other servants below you that have to do the stuff that you don't want to do. And as you know, stuff flows downstream. Like the person at the very bottom of the totem pole is the one who has to wash the feet. And that's what Jesus did. So even though he's claiming and asserting his authority over his disciples, over his followers, he just did so in this very reversed manner where he served them. And so he's saying, you're the servant and you're not greater than me, the master, and I just washed your feet. So what is the implication? And with that second one, this messenger is the same concept, right? The messenger doesn't outrank the person who sends the message. This is, this is actually the only time that the apostle John uses that word, apostolos, in reference to the followers of Jesus in the gospel, in his gospel. And it's usually translated apostle. I mean, you, you can see the connection between the word in Greek, apostolos, and the word in English, apostle. We just transliterated their word. And it means more than just a messenger, like one who carries a message. It has this idea of you're carrying a message, but you're, you're, you're on a mission or you're with a message. So we're on mission with a message from Jesus. So this is not so much the power authority thing. This is like the information and communication side of things. And so remember that context. Like he is the one who just washed their feet. And he said, you're not greater than I am. I just humbled myself to this level. What is the implication? What does that mean for his followers then and today? That he's willing to do the hard job. Now, carrying a message, I think to us in our day and age is really like abstract because we all just use instant messenger, not instant messenger, no one does instant messenger anymore. Everyone just uses Facebook messenger or WhatsApp or iMessage or Telegram or Signal or whatever. I don't know. You guys use messaging apps. I get it. 
So we don't think about who's carrying the message because right now it's just, you know, digital. But in Burundi, there's still a context where we use messengers. And that is, there's no paging system for the hospital. So at night, after people are expected to go to sleep, so that's like an hour after sundown, there's no like way to get a hold of the doctors readily, necessarily. Like if they call me, my phone is on, I'll answer my phone. But if I'm not answering my phone because I'm asleep, then the hospital, the nurses in the emergency room will send a messenger down to me and he will come to my door and he'll knock on my door. If I don't answer my door, he'll come knock on my window. This fortunately doesn't happen very often to me. Our surgeon and OBGYN, they have a lot more of these interruptions, but they'll knock until I wake up and then they'll hand me a, like a scrawled note from the nurse that says, here's the situation. And I can either write a note back, which says what to do, or more often I'll call the nurse at that point in time, or I can just go up with the messenger back to the hospital. And it's kind of, um, I think this is a really good analogy because it doesn't really matter who the messenger is that much because anyone can do that job as long as they know where I live and which room I sleep in because I don't want them knocking on the kid's window. But, but what matters is the nurse and the physician on either side of this message, right? And yet, if you think about it, the one giving us our mission, our mission and our message is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So what greater honor to be the message carrier for the, for the great King? You know, those, that job was a good job. Even back in the day, they had, they had people at posts along the Roman roads who would run with messages that were urgent. And those were usually something of high official value. Otherwise, it would go by boat, and it would just be the slow boat to Palestine. And it would be carried by like one person who would just take whatever route was convenient. So that's how messages were carried in that day. But we get to carry the message on mission for the most important sender of messages, the most important giver of missions. So he calls his disciples to this really, really humble job with this tremendous honor that goes along with it because of who is commissioning them. So that's the first two of five. So we're doing pretty good so far. I think my time, this is great. You guys are like, yes, we're going to go have barbecue after this to celebrate dads. But turn with me, if you will, just a few verses later, John 13, 35. John 13, 35 says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then if you will turn just a, a couple chapters later, John 15, 8. John 15, verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So can you guys guess what the name is that Jesus calls his followers from these two verses? You probably can't. It's disciples. Now this word is a really fun word, because this gets us a little bit more intimate than the servant messenger or the slave messenger um, dyad. A disciple was like a pupil, a learner, a student. You guys all know this. It's, it's like even richer than that though, because it's kind of like apprentice or acolyte, right? A disciple rabbi connection or disciple teacher connection in that day and age was a lot more time spent together doing life stuff than what we do today on Zoom when you're sitting in front of a screen trying to keep paying attention to your teacher who's droning on about some sort of math problem that you're really not interested in, right? Like what we do to students nowadays is very like 
abstract and formulaic and formal. Whereas what Jesus, the relationship he had with his disciples was much more informal, right? They were just together. And when Jesus was teaching, they were sitting in the audience. And when Jesus was making food, they were distributing the food. And when Jesus was sleeping, they were freaked out about a storm, right? Like this is, this is their life together. They got to see him get up early and go pray. They got to see him riled up in the temple when the religious leaders of the day were impeding people's worship so that they could make money out of it. They got to see him angry and sad and heartbroken and even joyful and content and astonished, right? When he saw great faith, he marveled, right? Jesus marveled that such faith existed in Israel at occasion. So I think that like what we get to do in Burundi is a little bit closer to this because we're working alongside our students. We're the clinical educators on the medical side and my wife is a piano teacher or music teacher. So she gets to like go to music practice and she gets to help out with church music and the musicians and do master classes. She gives assignments and then she listens back to their performance and gives them feedback. And like, this is much more, the time spent together is richer. I think when you're doing life together and that's, that's this, and that's now it's more intimate, right? Because it's not just power and authority. It's not just giving assignments. It's not just giving messages. It's like, I'm transmitting my life to you. It's the goal is not a lesson. It's a lifestyle at the end of a discipleship process, if it, if it has an end. And that's the, um, the beautiful thing in the walk with Jesus is that it doesn't end this side of eternity. So we're getting, we're getting closer and closer in to how Jesus refers to his followers. And it can't, I, I think that the point of this is that it can't merely be about doing things for Jesus, but it's about living life like Jesus. Does that make sense? Because he gives us a command, and it's, there's two commands, right? Love God with everything, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, look at this. I mean, you, you heard the verse that I, as I just read them, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So to be his disciple requires you to show love, which is his commandment, which is what makes you his servant. It's also his message, so it makes you his messenger. Do you see how they're all true at the same time? I think this is, only Jesus can do this, right? That you could be a slave or servant, a messenger and a disciple all at the same time. But wait, it gets better. John 15, 13 through 14. Just a few verses down. John 15, 13 through 14. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Friends. This is what Jesus is calling his disciples, his servants, his messengers, his followers. He calls them friends. If you look, just the, I think it's just one more verse down. Jesus says, I'm not even going to call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I'm calling you friends. Like he's making a point that you guys have just been promoted. Right? You just got to friend level, friend status. You know, click approve on Facebook. No, no, this is so much richer than that. That, that word is philos. And you guys know the different kinds of love in Greek. I'm sure that Pastor Sam has gone through all this with you. But this is where we get like um, philanthropy, the love of people, philosophy, the love of wisdom. Um, 
what is it? It's like philatelary or philatelist, like the people who love stamps. It comes from this, right? Like the philos is love. And I think that one of the beautiful things about speaking multiple different languages, I know a lot of you here are at least bilingual, is that you get a whole new set of vocabulary to describe the world. And I think that for this one, Kirundi actually is really good because there's two words in Kirundi for friend. There's umugenzi, abagenzi. You see how it's like those first two classes you remember from the beginning. And that comes from the verb kugenda, which is to go. Like to, to go like walking somewhere or to go even, even in a car. But you know when they didn't have cars when these verbs were being developed. So it's the person who goes with you. It's your companion. It's your traveling partner. And philos definitely has a component of that in it. But the second Kirundi word for friend is even better. It's umukunzi, which comes from the verb gukunda, which means to love. So this is a loved one, a beloved, a, a dear one. And I think that those two together, with a little bit of waiting on the love side, is what Jesus is trying to commit to their, to their hearts. Jesus calls them friends because he loves them. And because he loves them, they love him back. And because he loves them, they love each other. And this is the, like, this is the core. And I, you guys, hopefully, God willing, within a congregation this size, there's at least a few of you who have those dear, beloved within this congregation. That person who you can call at 2 a.m. in the morning because your toddler has a fever and is throwing up, and they will pray with you, and then they will come over to watch your other kids so that you can take that kid to the hospital or to the doctor. You have this person who will stay up all night with you to get a project done that has to be done in the morning because of whatever deadline that just got switched on you. Um, you have the person who will, every time they come over, they like mop your floors and clean your toilets because they know that you're crazy busy with work and school and family crises and they want you to have clean floors and clean toilets. Like, I, I hope that we have th some of those people in our lives and that we're becoming those people for each other. But that's what Jesus is saying. Like, he is there. He is there with them and he wants them to know that that is the love in which they live as friends. Love is central to Christ's life and to the Christian life, to the gospel message. Love, love is this central reality in all reality because God is love. Right? It's our same apostle. It's John in 1 John 4.19 that says, we love because he first loved us. And several times in that short letter, he says, God is love. You know, friendship... All of these things, the servant, master, the messenger, sender, teacher, disciple, friend, friend, all of these relationships are not in our lives on accident, and they're not in the Bible on accident. Jesus doesn't like discover that his relationship to his church, to his followers, happens to be like these things that exist. He ordained that they would exist so that we could viscerally, emotionally, experientially understand what our relationship to God is like. So this is, I think this is so crucial for us to understand that this is all of these relationships that we're talking about today are God's design so that we would understand him better. Because the next one we're going to talk about totally blew my mind. And I had read this verse in John 20, I don't know, almost a hundred times, I'm sure. It's in John 20, verse 17. I, and this was the reason why I 
wanted to do this topic, and the reason why this whole lesson came about, was I was reading this passage, uh, not this last Easter, but before, and I saw this word jump off the page at me for the first time. John 20, 17 says this. It's, it's Easter morning. Mary Magdalene has gone to the tomb, realized that Jesus wasn't there, went back and got the disciples. Peter and John run to the tomb. John, you know, gets there faster because he's ostensibly younger or just a better runner. Peter goes in uh, and sees that Jesus is not there, and then they leave. But Mary Magdalene is still there, like, mourning the disappearance of Jesus's body. And there's two angels that tell her, you know, he's not here. And then she turns around, and there's what seems to be a gardener who turns out to be Jesus. And she's like, you know, her heart of devotion is so great. She says, just tell me where he is, and I'll carry him somehow away. And he says, Mary. And then she realizes, oh, master, teacher, she says to him. Jesus responds. He said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Did you get the word? I kind of tried to emphasize it, so hopefully you heard it. Brothers. Jesus calls his followers brothers. Now, this is, this is, Jesus had some half-brothers and sisters. We know from other parts of the Gospels. When they come, he's teaching, there's a big crowd, they're trying to get to him, they can't get him. People are like, Jesus, your brothers are here. And he's like, who are my brothers? Behold my brothers and my mother. Like the people who listen and follow what I'm saying. But this was obviously very specific in reference to these followers. He calls them brothers, Adelphos, right? Hence we have Philadelphia, brotherly love. The, the calling of these men brothers happens only after the resurrection. I want you to notice that. There, you can get up to friend before Jesus does his redemptive work. But once that work is done, now they're brothers. And they really didn't understand, they still didn't understand a lot at this point in time that they were so, so as to be called brothers of Christ. But I want to talk to you about some of the implications. Like, what does it mean? What did, what did Jesus understand it to mean? And what can we understand it to mean to be called brothers of Christ? And this is, it's brother, obviously Jesus is talking about men, so it's, it has that gender specificity. But brothers and sisters, right? The women are not excluded in this. But in its simplest form, you know this, a brother is someone who shares a parent with someone else, right? So who's the shared parent between Jesus and us? It's not Mary, so it has to be God, right? So we have, and he says it, right? Like he, he really stresses this. I'm ascending to my father and your father, same person, my God, your God, same person. We share a parent, which means we share a family name. I think this, is, this to me is so radical, and I think that this is so needed in our world today. The tribalism that is endemic in the U.S. and Burundi where your family identity or your group identity takes precedence over everything else and you're at odds with others. This is so key because before I am a Wendler, now I am a godson. Before you're a Shin or a Chiang or a Kim or whatever, you are a Christ brother. This identity takes over because what's more important, who your earthly father is or who your heavenly father is? Right? Just like the messenger is prioritized based on who is sending the message. The king's messages get to go first, 
and fastest and with the highest honor, so our identity changes because of the cross and the empty tomb, because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. There's this, there's this sense of a new family because we're in Christ. And this is, I mean, John, again, 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In the NASB, I think it says that we should be called sons of God and such we are. Like this is God's love that we become sons and daughters, that we become brothers of Christ, brothers and sisters of Christ. That's, this is life changing for me. But we really should have seen it coming all along in Jesus' ministry, right? There should be no surprise that this is what happens because Jesus is always t- telling his disciples about their relationship to the Father. You know, he tells them, they ask him how to pray, right? You guys remember this in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven. Remember, the, calling God Father was a thing that got Jesus in trouble a lot with the Pharisees. And he is pushing that out to his followers and says, he's your father too. Earlier in chapter 15 of John, he says, you don't need to, you're not even going to pray and I'm going to tell the father for you. You can talk directly to your father because he loves you as I love you. So our family name is changed. But it also, to be a brother of Christ, also means that we share in his inheritance. Right? I mean, it's not just our origin, but it's our destiny or our destination. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What is Christ's inheritance? Like, what is the inheritance that the Father gives the Son within the Trinity? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is heaven. Oh, we get to go to heaven, which is true. His inheritance is the heavenly realm and the glories of heaven. But it's also the new earth. And it's all of the glory and the reign and the dominion forever and ever. Amen, right? You've read Revelation, at least some of you. Maybe the kids are like, that book was a little weird. I'm not sure about the dragon. But this is... This is the inheritance. This is, the heaven is only a part or an aspect of the inheritance. It's glory. The, inher- the inheritance that Christ has, that the Father gives the Son, is glory. And we get to share in that. Colossians 1.12 calls the inheritance of the saints in light. And Ephesians 1.18 calls it the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We get to share in the inheritance of glory that Jesus earned and receives from the Father. Uh, this is, I mean, do you know who I am? You guys don't know me from Adam. You think that like, you know, this guy standing up here, maybe like you think I've done something in my life. I've done nothing to deserve glory. Neither has Victor. (laughs) Pastor Sam, maybe, I don't know. Elder Thomas, maybe. But like we are, you, if you take a minute to think about who you are in the light of who God is and who Jesus is, there's no way you will conclude that you ought to share in his inheritance. This is pure, unmerited favor. The grace of God goes to salvation through sanctification unto glorification. The whole thing 
and he initiates it, he starts and finishes it, he will bring you to perfection. He will bring you into glory. In, the, in Romans 8, it's already past tense. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Past tense. God is outside of time and space the way that we experience it. So it's all done. And it was all done before the foundation of the world. Like he, this, don't think about that too long. You're going to get, you're going to get sidetracked and you're going to like, your brain is going to break when you try to think about a time before time started. Jesus, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing pre-eternal, pre, like infinitely in time past, but before time. So there's not a time. Anyways, I'm getting, I'm getting distracted. Let's keep going. We share an origin with Christ. We're part of his family. God is our Father. We share a destination, a glorious inheritance with Christ. But if I can, I would like to push one more implication of being Christ's brother into our hearts. God willing, may this, may this reside. We don't just share the origin and the destination. We share the journey with Christ. We share the task and the work and the ministry with Christ. This is, this is in John 15, the start of that chapter, or sorry, in John 5, that chapter, Jesus does what in my mind as a medical practitioner is the most difficult to understand miracle because Jesus walks into a super busy hospital, heals one person who didn't ask to get healed, and then disappears without even telling him his name or the good news of the gospel. It's really like confounding. And then he finds this guy later in the temple and doesn't give him the gospel, at least not according to what John records. If you guys have watched The Chosen and you're in season two, I think episode four has this miracle. It's awesome. It's an amazing depiction of it but they definitely take some license because they're talking about stuff that's not in the text. But in John 5, he does this, and he does it on the Sabbath day, which creates a lot of controversy, right? Jesus calling God his Father and working on the, working on the Sabbath day were two of the touch points of conflict between him and the religious leaders that were going to progress to murderous rage on Passion Week. And the Pharisees, I mean, they are so... They're so they're so stuck, right? Even the, the guy has been lame for 38 years. And when he shows up in the temple carrying his pallet on the Sabbath day, they're like, you can't carry your pallet on Sabbath day. It's Sabbath day. And he's like, the guy who healed me told me to pick up my pallet. So I did. Like 38 years lame. This guy says, pick up your pallet and walk. I'm going to pick up my pallet and walk. And they're like, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your pallet and walk? They don't say, who is this person who healed you? No, they, they cannot acknowledge the healing and the restoration of one of God's people who has been lame for 38 years, they're like pallet carrying. That's all they can see. And so after, that, after Jesus finds him, now he knows Jesus' name, he goes back to the Pharisees and tells them it was Jesus. I don't know if that was him like ratting out Jesus or just like his first testimony, like he was an evangelist at this point in time. But the Pharisees then come talk to Jesus and like, what are you doing healing on the Sabbath? And what does Jesus say? He says, my father is working until now and I am working. There's a job to do between origin and destination. It's love of God and neighbor. And that is what we share with Christ, our big brother. I want to close this out, and thank you for your patience with me, but I want to close this out by, if I can, adapting a story that Jesus told. And this is... Pastor Sam will tell me if this is heresy. I'm just going to adapt it. You guys, because it's, it's a story that you already know, so I'm just going to give you a little twist. 
There's a story Pastor Sam referenced already of a man who had two sons. It's in Luke 15. He had a, the older son and the younger son. And the younger son was a jerk. He said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me the inheritance that falls to me. He's like, I want to liquidate, I, need, I want you to liquidate your cattle and your sheep and your house and your farm and your fields and give me what's, give me what's due at your death right now, even though you're not dead yet. You're dead to me. I just want your money, right? And he leaves with a cartload of cash and he goes and blows it in a far country. This is the prodigal son. You guys all know this story. This is, I mean, Jesus tells three parables that all kind of start the same, right? There's a man who loses one out of a hundred sheep and he goes and finds it and then rejoices with his neighbors when he's found it. There's a, there's a widow who loses one of 10 coins and she like sweeps her house and looks for it until she finds it and then she rejoices with her neighbor. And then there's a man who has two sons and one of them is lost. And you remember, he goes and he consumes his wealth on debauchery, terrible living. Finally, he's humbled and broke. He goes and sells himself as a servant slash slave to a Gentile who raises pigs. And he's pitching slop to pigs and wishing that he could even eat some of it because he's so hungry and destitute. And then he comes to his senses and comes back, right? The man who had two sons lost one. And when he gets it back, he rejoices. All of the parables start the same. But this one finishes quite differently because there's this older son. And you remember what the older son does. The older son, who has been working next to his father this whole time, has no more love for his dad than the younger son did at the beginning of the parable because he absolutely does not share the love of his father for anyone other than himself. He's like, you won't even give me a goat, a baby goat, to party with my friends. And my, uh, my missionary friend in Chad tells me that eating a baby goat is like this, the pinnacle of stupidity. Like only an idiot would kill a baby goat to eat it because you could let it grow for a while and have much more goat. <laughs> so like, it's fun to know people in these like rural <laughs> tribes, but like, he's like, you'd have to be drunk or like mentally insane to eat a baby goat. But this is the older son, right? The older brother is totally lost. And this is Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees who were stuck on Sabbath keeping and not calling God your father. But I want to tell you, I want to, I want to flip that story a little bit. Because with Jesus as our brother, I think we can all acknowledge and recognize that younger son in our own life, right? And Jesus, in, in my story, is the older brother. So it starts the same that we are totally estranged from God. We want nothing to do with him. We'll take whatever, all the gifts that he's given us of life and breath and family and house and schooling and education and training and jobs, everything that he's given us, and we are just spending it on ourselves, wasting it. But we have an older brother in my story that's a little bit different because our older brother, who knows the father's love, and is compelled by his own love for us, leaves the farm, and he comes and finds us in the far country just before we run out of money. And we won't listen to him at all. We don't even want to see him. We avoid him when we see him. But then we run out of money. And then we end up slopping, uh, pitching slop for pigs in a place that we really shouldn't be. And you know what our big brother does for us? He goes and he talks to that Gentile pig herder. And he says, I'm going to take my brother's place. 
and we get freed somehow. We're, we're freed from that contract, that lifetime of indentured servitude that we were in to be reconciled to the Father. But he is stuck with the pigs. And in fact, in my story, the pigs and that swine herder kill our bigger brother. They work him to death and then beat him until he dies. And he does this for love. He's literally killed by love. Death by affection for us because he's like the father. And now I want to say that you and I, and he rises from the dead, by the way. Spoiler alert, this story has a fantastic ending. He rises from the dead because you can't kill God who is love. But I want to tell you, there are brothers and sisters out in the far country still. And that far country might be right next door. That's San Ramon and that's Kibuye, Burundi. And if we have the same origin as Christ and we have the same destiny as Christ or destination as Christ, and we're on this journey with Christ, we get to do that with him. And it does, it stinks and it's dirty and it's hard and it feels like dying. But it also feels like rising again from the dead. And I mean, you know this, those of you who have walked with Christ through any hard things know that on the other side, it feels like being alive again. And there's something about this spot, this step between origin and destination with Christ that is glorious and beautiful and life-giving to do it with him. It's hard and good at the same time, which is often how things are. So if I can leave you, like this is, this is, this is his mis- mission and his message, right? That strangers can be made friends. That servants can be brothers simultaneously. That humans can be reconciled to the infinite and holy God because of Jesus Christ. So this great redemptive arc that's over all of nature and history, this, mi- this command and commission that we get, this is where we get to live. This is a privilege. It's a hard privilege to bear, sure. But it is a privilege, right? I mean, I can't, Jesus, has, Jesus could send angels to announce his message, right? I mean, that's the word angel means messenger. They're sinless, powerful spiritual beings designed to carry messages. But he chooses us instead, right? He could use donkeys and rocks, but he chooses us. We're not going to do it perfectly. But the beautiful thing about having a big brother is that he modeled it, and he's our example that we should follow in his footsteps is what first Peter says. So I know that we're not all prepared to like die in a pig pen full of mud right now, but there is something that God is calling each one of us to do in the here and now, wherever we live, where we're at, that looks like being on journey with Jesus Christ from origin to destination with love and service and truth and grace. So if I can leave you with just two reflection questions, I hope this encourages you and not just like, if your response is like, oh man, I'm not doing a good enough job, then I think I messed up. But Jesus does it. He's going to do it. We, We get to be a part of it. This is our privilege. So I just want to encourage you to try. 
And for the fathers, I really want, this is the first people that you get to invest in are your spouses, your wives, and your children. Those are the right next door ones. But let me leave you with two questions to consider, and then I'm going to pray and pass it back to Pastor Sam. First question, do I share the family name and everlasting inheritance of the father? Is Christ my big brother? I know in a, in a church this size, in an audience this size, and with online watching, like there may be some who this is, for some, for some reason, this is the first time it's stirring up in your heart this notion of what Jesus did is something unique and different. And I, and I don't know that I've experienced that family ownership yet, and I don't know that I expect that glorious inheritance yet. Find one of your elders or pastor, and we'll talk about it afterward. Come and find me. I'd love to talk to you about how you can be forgiven of your sins. But the second question is, if I am in God's family, and I, and I am Christ's brother, am I on journey with Christ? His task, his communique, his life, his lesson is love. How is, how is that working out in my life today? And it starts right where you're at. So don't be afraid to try to do something that Jesus would do. Because he's on journey with you. And he'll show you step by step how to get there. Just look at him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us into your family. Thank you for giving us your name. Thank you for granting us an inheritance with Christ and for putting us on journey with him, giving us a task to do. We don't deserve to be your servants, let alone your friends. So Lord, please secure these things in our hearts. Empty us of ourself that we might be full of you and your love. Our, your love back to you and your love beyond us to all of our neighbors, starting in our own families. I pray a special prayer for the fathers today that they would see Christ as brother, as the one who perfectly loves their wives and their children, the one that has already accomplished all that needs doing, but is teaching and guiding and leading us towards that end. Father, we love you and we know that you love us. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for what you did to make all of this possible. May we all be more like you today and forevermore. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.